The time is now. Volume 2, Episode 36. This is Employment Law Now, your go-to podcast for labor and employment law. I am Mike Schmidt, the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. You know, one of the challenges to doing this podcast, um, because I so badly want to not only be informative, um, but also entertaining, uh, one of the challenges of doing this is that I very often wonder whether there'll be enough to say in all of these episodes. You know, I'm ambitious. I'm trying to get two new episodes out to all of you every month, uh, somewhere around, you know, 22, 24 episodes a year. Uh, And I know what you're all thinking right now. Mike, what what are you talking about? Lawyers always have something to say. Um, But know what I mean here. I, I finish an episode, and then I wonder if there'll be anything to talk about later in the month or two weeks from now. Um... You know, whether there's going to be uh, me just pressing the record button and have absolutely nothing. Who wants that out of a podcast, right? I mean, a show about nothing worked for Jerry Seinfeld 20 years ago, but it's not going to really work for me. But then I go another week and I go another couple of weeks and I think, wow, how do I keep the next episode to just around 30 minutes? Um, because there is so much to talk about. There is so much going on literally every week, and it's some, in some weeks it seems like almost every day. And isn't that why you love employment law? Whether you're in-house counsel, whether you're a human resources professional, uh, an executive at the company, or even an outside lawyer in private practice, this stuff is fun, this stuff is interesting, and the challenge really is not how are we going to fill 30 minutes of discussion time, but how do we keep abreast of everything? So... Once again, I thank you very much for continuing to listen and continuing to come back. Uh, I continue to get uh, get great feedback. I get emails and messages from folks um, around the country who are listening, uh, offering their feedback on topics they'd like to hear me discuss, um, potential guests they'd like me to have uh, on the podcast. So uh, I really appreciate you all listening. And please feel free to shoot me a message, give me a call, um, however you can get a hold of me. Uh, if there's something that you want me to talk about or something that you want me to focus focus on, um, I'd love to do that. So we've got a bunch of things to talk about today, um, including uh, some thoughts on holiday parties because it is that time of the year again. But before I get there, um, there's a few other topics that I wanted to share some thoughts on. First is our Trending Now segment. Uh, We are certainly in interesting times when it comes to regulation of the workplace. You have heard me say that several times, uh, almost really several times an episode. Um, A lot of it, as I've also said, is on the state and local level because, frankly, the federal government is not doing very much. Congress isn't really doing a whole heck of a lot. Um, But the federal government just announced its regulatory agenda um, in October of Uh, on October 17th, 2018, for the coming year, their regulatory agenda for their coming year. 
Um, and what is interesting about the new agenda that they just announced is that we are likely going to see, from the company standpoint, fewer regulations uh, and far less ambitious of an agenda. But it is worth, I think, tabbing the pages on what's trending in that regulatory agenda so that all of you know what's on the horizon when you're planning your workplace uh, issues and policies for the coming year. So let's start with the Department of Labor, the federal U.S. Department of Labor. A few things uh, are promised in the agenda for the end of this calendar year 2018. First, um, the Department of Labor intends to issue a proposed rule to clarify the joint employment standard, at least as far as the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, goes. Obviously, we've been talking about the joint employment standard um, with the NLRB and with courts generally, but the Department of Labor intends to issue a proposed rule on the joint employment standard uh, for the FLSA purposes uh, by the end of this calendar year. The prior administration um, under Obama took a much more expansive approach to joint employment. Um, we're not expecting that to be the case in this next proposed rule, but that's something to look out for. Also, by the end of calendar year 2018, the Department of Labor is uh, promising that it will issue rules clarifying how you calculate the regular rate under the FLSA in light of some more modern compensation methods that companies are establishing these days. Um, a couple of episodes ago, I had my colleague Susan Eisenberg talk about some wage and hour issues, three hot wage and hour issues in particular, one of which was this whole concept of regular rate and how you calculate regular rate. It's not just, for example, what somebody's um, hourly wage is, but uh, there's a whole lot that goes into that. Um, and by the end of 2018, the Department of Labor is going to uh, issue some rules clarifying those calculations. Also, by the end of 2018, um, and I guess this all sounds kind of ambitious as we are um, pretty much a day away from it being November, but uh, by the end of 2018, the Department of Labor is also promising a proposed rule to uh, address the implications of the FLSA amendments on tipping rules that came out earlier in uh, March of 2018. So Department of Labor uh, is promising some rules on that, and uh, hopefully uh, companies will get a little bit more guidance than what they've gotten so far uh, since the FLSA was amended on the uh, tipping issue back in March. Um, Still in the regulatory agenda for the Department of Labor, but not necessarily for 2018, um, this carrot that continues to move that we've been calling the proposed uh, overtime exception rules. Um, so uh, the new rules, supposed new rules for the white-collar overtime uh, exemptions were pushed back again to March of 2019. As I have said in this uh, podcast, the Department of Labor has been engaging in these listening sessions around the country. You may have heard about or or read about them, where they're, um, it's almost like a town hall kind of setting, where they're hearing from the various stakeholders, the people who have interest in these rules, um, to see what folks out in the communities think should be done um, with the Department of Labor's new rules. I think most of us who are prognosticating on this issue still think that the only change that we're going to see whenever that happens, and again, it's now been suggested that that'll be March of 2019, we think that there's only going to be a salary increase 
um, not keeping it where it is at its low level currently, not moving it to the 47,000 and change uh, that the Obama administration had proposed back in 2016, but somewhere in the middle, perhaps in the low 30s, uh, the low $30,000 a year as a threshold um, for the white-collar overtime exemptions. It's uh, not likely that there's going to be any kind of fundamental change in the job duties tests, but you know who knows, we may be surprised. Um, but So that's, that's coming around the pike in March of 2019, though I do suspect that this won't be the last time in this episode that we'll be talking about this issue um, between now and March. So that's the Department of Labor in the regulatory agenda for the NLRB, and and my gosh, we're about uh, eight minutes into this podcast episode, and that might be the longest we've gone in an episode before actually mentioning the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. Um, but in September of 2018, the NLRB uh, issued their own proposed rule on joint employment, restoring the prior uh, substantial direct and immediate control test that had been used before, again, the uh, Democratic uh, NLRB sort of changed that and made this more nebulous, uh, much more uh, pro-joint employer finding of a standard. So they issued a a proposed rule in September of 2018, restoring the substantial direct and immediate control test. Um, There was a comment period that was supposed to be ending at the end of November. Uh, We have now extended that because the NLRB is uh, getting a significant number of comments in, uh, and you all should feel free uh, to join that fray as well, either individually or uh, as part of an association or as a group, um, either on your own or certainly, you know, can reach out to uh, to council uh, to assist you in providing comments. But here, in addition to the Department of Labor joint employer rule, we're going to get the NLRB's um, take on that as well. And we expect after the comment period ends, we'll get some uh, action out of the NLRB on that issue in early 2019. When it comes to the EEOC's part of the regulatory agenda, interestingly enough, there were no real new significant items uh, coming on the horizon from the EEOC. But the EEOC does continue to be very active uh, in several areas, uh, including certainly the the Me Too movement and um, uh, how they are looking at harassment issues generally and investigation uh, issues, um, but also uh, other types of claims and issues the EEOC is is being real active on, transgender and sexual orientation, um, the ADA and GINA, you know, the the genetic uh, information rules. So the EEOC continues to be a very active agency, even though the regulatory agenda that was just issued doesn't have any kind of new uh, significant items on the horizon. So let's move to our Noteworthy Now segment. And there are a couple of cases that I wanted to bring to your attention that I find interesting. Um, I get a lot of calls from clients and from contacts who are, well, I mean, there's no other way of saying it than, than that they're pissed off because of these bad reviews and other online comments that they get. They want to do something. You know, it was a customer or, in, in more cases, it's a former employee, maybe even a current employee, um, who's writing on some online forum something bad about the company or about certain individuals running the company. You know, one of the 
parts or the initial analysis that I think you need to go through, putting aside whether there's any legal basis to do something, is do you really want to do something? Um, there are so many areas, and we talk about this a lot, where emotion gets the best of us in trying to go after, uh, in more times than not, a former employee who's doing something. But you really need to ask yourself, um, is it worth it? Are you just empowering uh, the individual who posted these comments? Um, is this a forum where members of the public are, frankly, numb to seeing either bad reviews or um, negative comments, and this is going to blow away um, over some time as opposed to sending a nasty letter or filing a lawsuit, even as an extreme, uh, and empowering the individual who posted these comments. Um, so I think that's really the first question that you want to ask. Emotion aside, is this really something that's worth pursuing? Um, and once you have decided that, you know, hey, yeah, we think it's worth pursuing, the next question has to be, can you, and, and who do you go after, and are there really grounds to do it? Well, uh, one case that just uh, came out uh, with a decision continues to show how hard it is to sue the actual um, bulletin board, the virtual bulletin board, I should say, um, that has posted the comments uh, from some individual or, or groups of individuals. Um, the case is a federal court case out of the District of Massachusetts, and in this case, the company sued Glassdoor to hold it responsible for various trolling reviews that were posted against um, one of the company's co-founders. The court dismissed the case, saying that Glassdoor is immune under federal law to these types of lawsuits. Uh, generally, an Internet service provider, according to the court, uh, that hosts uh, anonymous reviews um, are not responsible for the content of those users. Uh, even if the um, bulletin board, such as Glassdoor, even if the online forum screens uh, for some basic guideline um, compliance, even in those cases, the uh, Internet service provider like Glassdoor is not going to be responsible when they host anonymous reviews. They're not responsible for the content. So there are cases like this that have been coming down around the country. Um, some cases go the other way depending on the particular facts or uh, if the message is not uh, anonymous. Um, there, there may be other uh, rights that you have. But again, question one, is it worth it? Is it something worth pursuing? And number two, in your jurisdiction, what seems to be the trend in the cases dealing with this issue in allowing you to go forward against uh, the internet service provider who is acting as the virtual bulletin board. The second noteworthy now case that I want to bring to your attention, um, and this is real interesting. So the question is, what happens when your company gives significant severance to uh, a, an employee in exchange for a release? And then that employee still goes ahead and sues to challenge the release, but doesn't give the uh, severance back. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not kidding you. The case is, for those keeping score at home, McClellan versus Midwest Machining uh, out of the Sixth Circuit. Here you had a Title VII pregnancy discrimination claim, uh, as well as an equal pay claim, uh, where the allegation was that men were paid more than female counterparts were. Um, after the lawsuit was filed, the company reached out to the plaintiff's lawyer to say, hey, you know, by the way, your client signed a release. What are you doing here? Well, the plaintiff claimed that the release was signed under duress, uh, and she didn't realize what she was, in fact, signing. She didn't realize she was signing away her right to sue uh, for all uh, claims. The issue in this case, in this McClellan case, turned on whether the agreement, the signed release, was, quote, knowing and voluntary, end quote. That 
test, that standard, if you will, has been around forever, but most people still don't focus on it because litigation over that term uh, still tends to be fairly rare. But that's what the issue was in this case, whether the release, the signed release, was knowing involuntary. The uh, employer in this case moved to dismiss uh, after the complaint was filed, um, and the argument was that the plaintiff failed to tender back the severance that was received in exchange for getting the release, and because the plaintiff failed to tender back the severance, um, she could not move forward with a claim challenging the release. The first court, the district court, agreed with that employer's argument and dismissed the whole case. But when it was brought up on appeal, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed that decision, holding that the common law tender back doctrine, this doctrine which says, again, under common law, not a particular statute, the doctrine says that in order to challenge a release, you must first tender back the severance that you got as a consideration for the release. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said that that common law tender back doctrine does not apply to statutory claims under Title VII or under uh, the Equal Pay Act. It threw the company a bone by saying in the event of an ultimate judgment, you can deduct the severance that was given from any future award, but the reality is that the case still got to uh, continue, uh, and the tenderback doctrine did not apply. So the takeaway from that case, I think, is that make sure you are setting up this um, signing event um, without providing facts that would give rise to the employee being able to challenge later on on the grounds that it was not signed knowingly and voluntarily. You know, maybe suggest that he or she go speak with a lawyer. Certainly provide reasonable amount of time for the employee to look over the agreement, even take it home and look at it. Uh, maybe have a couple of people, witnesses, if you will, uh, during the signing event. Um, again, to minimize the likelihood that somebody can take your severance and yet go ahead and challenge the release, and if the release is knocked out, actually go forward and sue you while still keeping that severance. Very noteworthy case, I think. So we end with uh, another Trending Now segment, um, and that is uh, this time of year, um, we are all talking about, of course, holiday parties. Have you detected a theme in a lot of the music that I bring to these podcasts? Uh, I am so clutching on to my 80s life um, and, and all of the music and shows and everything from the 80s. It's, it's crazy. Not that, you know, there's no good music or no good TV shows or movies out uh, here in 2018, but I don't know. I, I get so melancholy and I can't, can't let go of the 80s. Anyway, so this is that time of year. We are getting close, and you all, I'm assuming, are getting close, unless you're one of those companies that have decided that we are not going to have holiday parties at all. Um, we are that time of year where we're planning and organizing our holiday parties. So um, I wanted to give some friendly reminders. Uh, you've probably heard many, if not all, of these um, in prior um, podcast episodes or however else you get your labor and employment news in prior years, um, but I thought it'd be worth giving you my take, uh, and my take certainly uh, in a top ten list. So 
Um, you know, many people are focused, uh, as we're moving into November, they're, they're focused on Black Friday this time of year and, and Thanksgiving as the unofficial start to the holiday shopping season. However, from a risk management perspective, employers should also heed the orange caution hue when it comes to office holiday parties. Otherwise, you will all and your companies will all quickly live that old adage that no good deed goes unpunished. Now, I am not here and don't want this podcast to uh, serve the role of being Ebenezer Scrooge um, for your holiday persona uh, and have your holiday parties go the way of cassettes and fax machines, uh, again, uh, primarily of the 80s. But there are some tips, I think, that you should take with you and take back to your companies in order to avoid potential trouble with your office holiday parties. So I threw my thoughts together uh, in a top 10 list, uh, and let's start. So, number 10 is alcohol-related. So obvious an issue, yet it is so often still ignored. Without question, alcohol consumption is considered to go hand-in-hand with a party, and restricting or eliminating alcohol altogether uh, can certainly have the effect of dampening morale and the spirit of those who are attending the party. However, the notions of alcohol consumption and reasonable restrictions on that consumption are not mutually exclusive. So there are a few things that you might want to consider when it comes to alcohol and holiday parties. One, Restricting the number of drinks permitted. Maybe give out drink tickets. Restrict the type of drinks that are permitted. Perhaps consider not allowing shots. Uh, maybe providing plenty of quote-unquote cool, non-alcoholic options. Or maybe even restrict the time that drinking is permitted. Have sort of a last call, um, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes prior to departure time. Hey, we see that at sporting events now. Uh, all of the stadiums and arenas that I go to, they have a last call. They don't allow service of alcohol right up until the time uh, that the game is over and people are scooting out of the stadiums. So you should think about doing that too. You also might think about ensuring that there is sufficient food um, available and being passed around to help slow absorption. Uh, And also maybe think about offering vouchers and paid cab rides or some other incentives for employees to act as designated drivers. Again, the concept is not to just go the extreme and say we're not going to have any alcohol at all, although that's certainly an option. Um, But if you're going to have uh, alcohol at the party, think about ways to restrict the potential uh, for the alcohol to induce uh, problems. Number nine deals with selfies. We were born with two hands uh, so that while one holds the drink at the other at the party, the, the other hand holds the smartphone. Very few go a minute these days without snapping a picture or a video of themselves or others. And certainly, uh, while we're on the topic of alcohol, alcohol lowers the inhibitions there as well. So one thing to be thinking about, I think, is that you should be making sure your employees are at least sensitive to the privacy wishes of those around them, as well as the fact that, again, as we say all the time, delete never truly means delete. Eight deals with compensation and bonuses. So um, recent presidential executive orders uh, over the last few years and certainly NLRB decisions um, definitely suggest that companies cannot prohibit employees from discussing wage-related issues. That includes end-of-the-year bonuses or salary and compensation adjustments. So one thing to consider is uh, to advise your employees of any end-of-the-year salary adjustments and bonuses 
after putting them all together in a party room, particularly if the current economic climate is going to dictate a downward trajectory uh, on dollars that you are giving out from your company. You don't want to make those um, salary and bonus announcements the day of or a couple of days before the party where everyone is now going to be getting in, uh, into a room and what should be a festive mood turns into a gripe session. Number seven, dress code. Uh, good news, you uh, are no longer, by the time you get to you know, end of November and December, you're no, likely, uh, no longer likely to have the costumes that your office Halloween party paraded in. The not-so-good news is that employees still do change attire when leaving the office to go to a holiday party. So you certainly want to make sure employees are aware of your reasonable dress code ahead of time, what your expectations are, um, and how you take very seriously uh, the notion that inappropriate and overly suggestive attire is not acceptable for any office-related functions. So much of this is common sense. Obviously, um, the overly suggestive, um, you want to try to avoid um, any kind kind of offensive costumes that tend to single out a protected class, race, gender, disability. You might want to think about in today's uh, hot political climate, trying to avoid uh, employees who are coming in uh, politically insensitive costumes. Um, but that's something certainly to think about. Number six, and uh, this is the part of the top ten list referring to no-shows. So there is a myriad of reasons why your employees may choose to avoid the office holiday party altogether. Most people think, well, you know what, we're spending a lot on a grand holiday party. Why wouldn't everybody want to go? Why shouldn't everybody be forced to go? Well, perhaps an employee has suffered a personal loss at this time of year or is generally uncomfortable with mixing business with pleasure. Um, perhaps an employee has another commitment that evening or simply wants to spend the time with family. Uh, typically, these things, uh, if they're not on the weekend or a Friday night, they still are in the evening after office hours. So, in any case, the point of the holiday party should be to celebrate and reward employees who want the celebration and reward, and not as a means to retaliate or ostracize those who are uncomfortable with it. And on a related note, Mom. number five, let's try to keep this non-secular. It is often difficult to see the harm in adorning the party room with menorahs and Christmas trees or having the CEO of your company come in white beard and red coat to hand out the secret Santa gifts. But as with any work time issue, and remember, as I always say, the office party is not only an extension of the office, uh, the physical office, but it's also an extension of work time for those who are there, right? Um, as with any work time issue, employers should understand their religious accommodation obligations under the law and the need to be sensitive to those who may be particularly sensitive with overly secularized party themes. Um, there was one recent case a few years ago where uh, an employee's complaint included a race and religious discrimination claim after the plaintiff, who was a Jehovah's Witness, um, would not come to the office during the day of a holiday party because she didn't celebrate Christmas. So. Sometimes these are things that you don't think about. And look, most, if not all, employers are not you know, looking at the holiday party as a means to ostracize, to discriminate, to not accommodate. Uh, they're not looking at this as a bad thing. They're looking at this as a good thing that they're trying to do for their employees. Um, but we are in 2018, uh, and all your companies need to be sensitive and cognizant of these various issues.
Number four. This is where I devote my um, thought to spouses. Um, again, as I continue to beat the dead horse, we assume the goal of your office holiday party is to boost the morale of your employees and reward them with a company-sponsored party for another productive year. The uh, goal is not to create a wild, wild west, anything goes forum. So how do we strike the desired balance when we don't want to cancel the holiday party altogether? Well, the whole theme of these uh, thoughts, this top 10 list of thoughts, is to consider adding certain elements to your parties that will minimize the potential claims or the likelihood that someone or someones are going to feel uncomfortable from conduct that's taking place at the party. Well, one way to do it is to perhaps consider the additional proactive step of inviting spouses or partners uh, and significant others, maybe even make it a kid uh, children related party um, because the more that you have non-employees the more you have the spouses the partners the significant others even kids um, the more your atmosphere is likely to be kept disciplined and professional and certainly the less likely it is that alcohol is going to be a tremendous contributing factor to any real problems Number three is similar. Um, they say in real estate all the time that it's all about location, 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 and many believe that the same is true when it comes to holiday parties. Again, if the goal is to provide a fun morale boost and still keep the decorum professional, consider holding the holiday party in the office and not going out to some big catering hall or some restaurant off-site where people just tend to think, well, the rules of the workplace no longer apply. Uh, your employees are certainly less likely to forget that office policies and protocols still apply regardless of where the office personnel congregates. Which brings us to number two, policies. Um, office policies and protocols still apply regardless of where the office personnel congregates. And that's so important that it's worth repeating verbatim. It's also so important that it's worth having you or your HR professionals consider the following. One, make sure that you have a comprehensive lawful workplace policy that deals with harassment, discrimination, retaliation, a complaint procedure, a social media policy that's appropriate. Make sure those are in place. And two, consider circulating a memo to employees prior to your holiday party that reminds them of your workplace policies, reminds them that those policies apply equally to on- and off-premises parties, and reminds them that the company will not tolerate inappropriate behavior and violations of its policies. Of course, the number one tip to avoid potential trouble at your office holiday party is, as always, mindset. I say this for almost every employment law issue that I talk about. It is all about developing the appropriate mindset. Look, there's always the unexpected occurrence, and there is even the forgotten rule or law every once in a while, but employers, your companies, are best equipped to anticipate and address any issues concerning the office holiday party if you develop the appropriate mindset from the start. They always say, and I always say, you can't start talking to your children for the first time when they become teenagers, and it is equally futile to start developing the appropriate mindset on workplace protocols and employee relations for the very first time at holiday time. So you should be spending the entire year, and this is now something that we should hopefully take away as we get into the beginning of 2019. Spend the entire year creating the right atmosphere in your workplace. 
making sure that your managers, your supervisors, and all of your rank-and-file employees understand the do's and don'ts when it comes to employee obligations and rights. Uh, and by all means, speak with your outside counsel when you're not sure. Um, in fact, once your holiday party is over, consider including all of that in your New Year's resolutions. Because the more that you spend your entire year developing this appropriate mindset, well, by the time you get to November and December and your holiday party, that stuff is already going to be ingrained well uh, into the minds of your employees. So that's all the time we have today. Um, again, I really appreciate you listening, and I hope uh, this has been useful to you. We've got a lot of things lined up for uh, upcoming episodes. I've got a bunch of guests who are chomping at the bit uh, to get interviewed and talk about some uh, pressing employment law issues, both on the government side and uh, on the HR and private practice side. So uh, keep listening, and I will continue to try to educate and entertain at the same time. Uh, until then, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. 